college degree is more essential than ever for economic security in the United States. Yet investing in college is also an increasingly risky proposition, with less than 70% of students who enter four-year schools completing a degree within six years. Meanwhile, new data sources, not to mention high-profile admission scandals, lay bare the extent to which the admissions process at elite colleges favors students from privileged backgrounds at the expense of the poor. In a time of rising inequality and stagnant economic mobility, it seems fair to ask whether America's vaunted system of higher education is part of the solution or part of the problem. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Paul Tuff. Paul's the author of the new book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, which offers an in-depth look at how higher education in the U.S. works, for whom it works, and for whom it doesn't. He's the author of three previous books, including the best-selling How Children Succeed, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, and a regular contributor to This American Life. You can find a review of the years that matter most on our journal's website at educationnext.org. And I'm thrilled he's agreed to discuss the book with me today. Paul, welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So this is a great book. I really enjoyed it, not only because it's the first book to cite the Ednext podcast in its footnotes. <laughs> uh, so I want to start out by asking you to defend the book's title. You're someone who's written previously about the importance of early childhood education, as well as about how K-12 teachers influence their students' long-run success. In what sense does college represent the years that matter most? What research led you to that assertion? Um, so I, I take your point that there are other years that matter a lot uh, that I've written about. I mean, you write my book, Helping Children Succeed, which we talked about last time, uh, focused a lot on the years from zero to three, uh, which matter enormously in children's development. Um, when I talk about why those years after high school matter the most, what I'm really talking about is social mobility. Um, is the, the, and there's, I think this has changed. I don't think this was always the case in American life. But I got the sense both from the data that's out there from economists, but also from talking to young people that there is this new um, pressure on what happens to young people and what uh, and, and the decisions that they make and that those decisions uh, and those sort of forks in the road more so than they ever have before and more so I think than any other country um, uh, predict the trajectories for young people for the rest of their lives. So that's what I'm trying to get at with this book. And ultimately you write that there's a paradox at the center of the experience of economic mobility in the U.S. that the American system of higher education has the potential to be a powerful engine of upward mobility, but functions as something closer to the opposite. How so? Well, so for individual students, uh, there is no question that uh, higher education and a college degree still is what it always has been and, and what it's supposed to be in American life, which is this great engine of social mobility, the, the force that can most reliably uh, help young people move from poverty to the middle class or from the middle class to affluence. But when you look at the system as a whole, what's clear is that that, that positive process is not happening for many, uh, for many young people, especially many low-income young, young people. And um, there are all of these barriers and obstacles that we, that the system, has placed in their way. Um, and so when you talk to young people, that's, that's really what they say, especially young people who come from modest circumstances, um, that now higher education feels more like this barrier or this obstacle to their social mobility. Yeah, so those barriers and obstacles facing low-income students both before they arrive on campus and after they get there, they're really the focus of the reporting that you did for this book to a large extent. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of them. What's, what gets in the way? Well, I mean, it starts with admissions. So uh, 
and and that's a range. So at, at the most highly selective institutions, um, the economist Raj Chetty and John Friedman um, and others, they came out with this report a couple of years ago that showed, I think, for the first time in, in stark uh, relief, how at highly selective institutions, the student bodies are dominated by affluent students. Um, and there are uh, very few students from the bottom economic quintile. So those admissions decisions um, I, I are the first big barrier. Um, another big barrier, I think, for students less uh, egregious, but I think certainly important psychologically, is the the, the way that, uh, especially s selective institutions, make low-income first-generation students feel. Um, it, it can be really alienating uh, and jarring to be uh, a low-income student, a first-generation student, and arrive on a campus that is so dominated by affluence and privilege. Um, and what I hear from a lot of students is even when academically they're able to, to keep up and persist, uh, it just doesn't feel great to be a low-income student on a highly selective campus. More broadly, I think the obstacles that we've put in students' way are about um, public higher education. And the defunding of public higher education that's happened over the past couple of decades means that um, that those institutions, which are, serve most uh, college students in the United States and certainly most low-income college students, uh, they cost more. Um, they lead to more student debt. They uh, and they're also less. Um, they just have fewer resources. So they have less student support, less student services, uh, less of a choice of, of you know majors and courses, um, and all of those obstacles uh, disproportionately affect low-income students. Now, you also, in your reporting, spent some time with affluent families, including some who were investing substantially in test prep and other strategies to improve their admissions prospects. Based on what you just said, we might imagine that you would conclude that the system's working just fine for them, but that's not ultimately what you argue. So how how's that not the case? Yeah, well, so on, I mean, in some ways it is working just fine for them. I mean, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with this one um, SAT tutor, Ned Johnson, who works in Washington, D.C., uh, and runs his own company there called Prep Matters, charges a whole lot of money and mostly educates uh, or, or trains um, high-income affluent students. And uh, so on the, on the surface, at least, it works. Their test scores went, well, the, his students' test scores went way up. They were all getting into the colleges that they wanted to get into. And what you know, a variety of economists have showed is that when those students uh, get to those uh, most selective institutions, it pays off for them in a big way. Uh, but it also didn't seem like much fun. I mean, you know, the, the kind of pressure that these uh, affluent adolescents felt uh, around admissions in general and specifically around those standardized tests just seemed, you know, enormously stressful and unpleasant. Um, and none of them seemed too happy about being there. They felt like this was something they had to do. Um, you know, part of it was pressure from parents, but more it was just pressure from everything around them. Uh, and... And they, I think there were two things. One is they just were missing out on a lot of normal adolescent uh, uh, activities to keep cramming for these tests. But the other was that I think they, they um, realized that it was an unfair system. And even if they were able to uh, take advantage of that and to benefit from it, you know, this is a generation that I think cares pretty deeply about issues of social justice uh, and is looking for new solutions to things like um, climate change and gun violence. Uh, and then, you know, at this moment where they're 16 or 17, we take these idealistic young people 
and plunge them into the system where uh, that that is fundamentally unfair, and tell them that they have to compete with their peers and try to you know elbow aside uh, the next student. And I think that is is sort of profoundly uh, unsettling to a lot of those students. I was struck by the extent to which this very successful tutor focused as much on managing students' anxiety as on building their academic skills, which to some extent speaks to what students are experiencing. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, so his, and this, this is Ned Johnson again, his theory about the tests is that, you know, the sort of students who he's getting into his office, who mostly are going to excellent schools and with well-educated parents, what is holding them back from getting the, the super elevated scores that they think they need um, is not a lack of knowledge. It is uh, it is stress. It is the, the anxiety that the test creates in them. And you know, the, one of the many downsides of all the pressure that these students, uh, that is placed on these tests for these students is that they come to think that this test defines them. It isn't just the thing that's going to get them into, the, into college, it's going to reveal their true selves. And when you feel that way about a test, you, you freak out. <laughs> and when you freak out, you tend not to do better, but to do worse. So a lot of what Ned spent his time talking to these students about was, uh, yeah, the anxiety that comes along with being... Um, uh, a highly competitive uh, young person in uh, an anxious, affluent, uh, aspirational family, uh, and and he gave them lots of strategies to deal with that, from you know sleep to diet to just trying to find some life balance. And a lot of what he did was tell, told them that this test was not actually a, a true measure of their worth, but this sort of goofy little game that he could teach them uh, the tricks to overcome. And in the process of doing that, I think he he lowered the stakes for them. Now, you would largely finish your reporting, I believe, by the time news of the Varsity Blues admission scandal broke, and you don't discuss it in detail in the book, but I wondered if your reporting might give you a unique perspective on it. Yeah, there's a few paragraphs, right, and one I'm writing about Ned where I talk about the the scandal, but you're right, it mostly uh, happened after I'd, I'd finished most of the book. And... Um, so what I did was went back and read the FBI wiretaps of uh, Rick Singer, uh, the corrupt college coach at the heart of the scandal, talking to the various parents uh, while the FBI listened in. Um, and what struck me about, about reading those wiretaps is that the parents did not sound like they were in the middle of a big criminal conspiracy. I mean, they were doing crazy things, um, and definitely what they were doing was wrong and against the law. But they just sounded like every other, you know, overstressed, affluent parent who I'd met in my reporting. Um, and the, the quote that I mentioned in the book is this one uh, hedge fund manager, owner, uh, who, when Rick Singer was telling him that he had to send a photo so he could Photoshop, a photo of his kids so he could Photoshop the face onto a place kicker's body or something insane like that, um, he la- the, the parent laughed and said, ah, oh, the way the world works now is crazy. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of parents feel. It's like you're just jumping through one hoop after another, and you know the system is kind of corrupt and isn't fair and isn't really measuring anything true. Uh, and so I think when someone like Rick Singer comes along and says, you know, yeah, it's true, there are no rules, so let's just take these extra few steps, uh, it made sense to these parents that that was a smart thing to do. Now, to the extent that there's a villain in your book, it may be the college board, the nonprofit that administers the SAT, college admissions test. and You suggest that they were slow to release the disappointing results of an effort to uh, increase the share of low-income, high-achieving students who attend selective colleges. You write that it released misleading information about who was taking advantage of free SAT tutoring provided via Khan Academy. I should say that the College Board has responded to those 
allegations on its website. But even setting aside their concerns, why don't you see this as a good faith attempt on the part of the college board to make the college admissions process more equitable? It's You characterize it a bit as uh, corporate rebranding, but maybe we should be encouraged that they see it valuable to rebrand themselves with efforts along these lines. Um, sure, I think I think it's good that th- that there is in their in their uh, corporate mission uh, at least a desire to to um, seem like they are becoming more of a tool of ec- of equity and not inequity. I don't think of the College Board as a villain, um, but I do I I did find a lot of what they uh, were doing during the years that I was reporting this book to be distressing. You know, when I started writing about the College Board, when I started talking to David Coleman, the president, uh, years and years ago. I was really encouraged by what they were talking about and by the the steps that they were talking about taking. Uh, and it was only you know the fact that I took so long to report this book. I spent six years working on it that I was able to see how these uh, various interventions, which the education press wrote about really you know glowingly uh, when they all got started six or seven years ago, um, I was able to see how they played out over time and. A lot of these experiments did not work out the way that the College Board uh, predicted that they would. They did not really level the playing field at all. And, you know, on one level, that's fine. It's fine to try things uh, and have them not work out. What I found distressing was the way that the College Board uh, was talking about these um, interventions publicly. I think they are not being straightforward. uh, We're not being straightforward with the public about the extent to which the test favors high-income, uh, non-first-generation um, uh, students. And that, you know, that's, been, that's always been true about the SAT, right? The SAT has always been, uh, SAT scores have always correlated highly with family income. Uh, and so that's been well known for a long time. That's always been the rap about the SAT. What the College Board really tried to do over these years is change that perception. Uh, and as far as I could see, they weren't changing the perception by changing the reality. Uh, I think that correlation is still as strong as ever. Um, it's harder to find those numbers on their website than it was a few years ago. Uh, but I haven't seen any change at all in the correlation between family income and um, and SAT scores. But the communications office of the College Board has spent these years trying to make the case uh, that the SAT is actually more of a tool for social uh, justice and social mobility than high school GPA, and that's just not the case. One of the aspects of the debate over the role of SAT that I didn't see you engage with as much as I might have expected in the book is its role as a check on inflation of grades uh, and other things that go into the application process that, but for the SAT, might look a little different than they do currently. Uh, Is that something you worry about as you make the case for downplaying the role of the SAT in the admissions process? Uh, I don't worry about it all that much. I mean, I uh, so I wrote about the 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 College Board has made the case that uh, that the SAT is a check against um, uh, grade inflation. I mean, this is always this is what the case was for the SAT decades ago, right? That you can't trust uh, high school GPA. Um, and th- so they're continuing to make that case. The new case that they made during the years that I was reporting the book was that uh, grade inflation was benefiting uh, well-off students, privileged students more than um, disadvantaged students. What I saw in the data that they released was that that's not the case at all, that there, I- that there is grade inflation, but that that grade inflation is pretty much common among every different demographic, um, and that the, the real uh, divergence that's changed over the last decade or so is that advantaged groups are increasing their SAT scores even more, and disadvantaged groups are falling. Uh, their SAT scores are falling. 
So um, I, I feel like the case that uh, the case that the SAT is somehow correcting uh, an imbalance that is benefiting wealthy kids, I don't think there's any evidence of that. Well, I think I guess the question is what would those trends look like, but for the requiring of the SAT, right? Well, I, I so, mean, you know, I think one place where I saw an answer to that was in Texas. So I did a lot of my reporting at the University of uh, Texas in Austin, where uh, two-thirds of the class is admitted because of this law that passed a couple of decades ago called the Top 10% Rule. Two-thirds of each uh, freshman class is admitted without anyone looking at their test scores because they are in, now it's not the top 10, it's the top 6% of their uh, high school graduating class at any school in Texas. And um, so, you know, we can look at that freshman class. These are, the, you know, the, there, is, there are no test scores to, to, uh, to reference those norms. They're just admitted through their GPA. And what you see in that class is um, a, a much more socioeconomically diverse class than most flagship institutions that pay a lot more attention to uh, SAT scores. And especially because of uh, a variety of efforts that UT has made over the past six or seven years that I write about in the book, uh, those low-scoring, low high-achieving students who show up on campus, mostly you know, low-income, Latina, uh, Latino, mostly disproportionately female students uh, who have high GPAs and low test scores, um, they do great. They are graduating, uh, they're succeeding, they're graduating in huge numbers. So UT Austin, I think, is, a, is an example of what you get when you don't look at test scores. And what you get is a more diverse, uh, uh, academically excellent freshman class that succeeds at really high levels. Now, one of the many compelling characters in the book is a man named Angel Perez, who since 2015 has handled enrollment management for Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. This is a school with a reputation for attracting a high concentration of ultra-rich students, but he convinced the school leadership to go test optional, meaning students wouldn't be required to submit SAT or ACT scores, and to do more to recruit low-income students. But you ultimately show that his efforts, at least so far, haven't done much to make enrollment at Trinity more diverse. Does, does that story reveal the limits of test optional policies? What do you take away from it? Um, I think yeah, I think that's one of the things that it shows. So so right. So Trinity went test optional under Angel, and he um, he thinks it made made a big difference in terms of the kind of students that he is able to admit. Uh, and a lot of the faculty felt the same way that it it. Uh, diversified the class very slightly, um, but that academically it led to much, uh, a much more sort of curious and, and exciting group of students to, uh, to teach. So yeah, the fact that like, so his, his numbers, his Pell percentage, his uh, underrepresented minority uh, student number, um, they've gone up by like two, three, four percent over the last few years. Um, and I guess the question is like, is that an important gain or not? Um, you know, I think it's a significant gain. I don't, I think that he, he is not satisfied uh, and I'm not either by how much of a change he's been able to make. The point that I'm trying to make in that chapter is not really about just the success or, or failure of what happened at Trinity. It's that um, important though I think test optional policies are uh, and um, problematic though I think the tests are in terms of making it easier for admissions people to admit more high income students and harder for them to admit more low income students. Getting rid of those tests does not solve all the problems that uh, private four year uh, nonprofit institutions have. Their big problem is money. Um, and that's certainly the case at Trinity. Trinity is losing $8 million a year despite the fact that they've been uh, uh, educating so many rich kids in recent years. Um, 
and that that kind of problem, uh, that kind of financial problem, is true for lots of private institutions right now. And when you are a tuition-dependent institution, as most of those institutions are, uh, and you're in that kind of financial trouble, you have to admit high-income students uh, just to keep the lights on, to pay your bills. Um, and so, as I describe in that in that book, at the at the end of the admissions process in the year where I was watching uh, Angel work. All of the students who he was uh, removing from the uh, the roster for the, from next year's freshman class were low-income students, exactly the students he most wanted to admit, but they just couldn't afford to. So yes, I think it does show the limits um, of test-optional policies. Um, more specifically, I think it shows the pressures that uh, especially those those uh, private nonprofit four-year institutions are under. So I would say that the book as a whole is long on diagnosis, but short on prescription. As Matt Chingos put it in his review of the book for Education Next, what Tuff doesn't tell readers is how we might create more of these opportunities for transformation and diminish the perpetuation of unearned privilege. To some extent, I see that as a feature rather than a bug. These are difficult problems, and it's nice not to hear that there's a silver bullet solution. Um, but you do talk about some important innovations in higher education, both new practices on existing campuses and some entirely new institutions that have emerged that might shed light on where solutions may come from. What were you most excited about in your reporting uh, that might point a way forward? Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think Matt is right uh, that this is not as prescriptive a book as, as say, Helping Children Succeed that was more aimed at um, practitioners and policymakers. Um, I really look at this as a, a book of, you know, narrative nonfiction, um, trying to tell a story. Uh, but I definitely do feel like there are, it's pointing the way towards certain changes. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that I, um, I'm trying to balance in the book is uh, sort of smaller short-term solutions with, with bigger long-term solutions. Um, and I think in, there's a tendency for us to look for those short-term, uh, short smaller solutions and say, yeah, look at what this particular college is doing. They've been, you know, you know, brought in this new uh, app that is letting them track students better, and that's leading to uh, different kinds of success rates. And those things are important. And so like some of the ones, I mean, a lot of what UT did uh, to improve its, its um, graduation rates, I think, is really really important. I write about this college uh, called Rupe College, a two-year um, uh, school in Chicago that's connected with Loyola University. And Arupe is uh, focused on uh, some students who have some of the lowest success rates in higher education, um, low-income, mostly black and Latino graduates of Chicago public schools who have an average ACT of 17 when they get to the college. There are basically no institutions that are doing a good job of serving those students. Um, but Arupe has a, a pretty good graduation rate with those students, and it's a, you know, a, a Jesuit-based liberal arts education trying to prepare them uh, not just to go right into uh, the workplace, but to go to transfer to a four-year institution. So the fact that they are doing as well as they are, I think, is a real sign that there's a different approach out there that could uh, lead to much better outcomes. But I say all that uh, uh, to, to sort of say that I, I, at the same time that I do th hope that people pay more attention to those models um, and figure out what, what different institutions uh, can learn from them, I think that the problems are so systemic in higher education that those sorts of, of you know, small and medium-sized fixes aren't enough. I think the fact that we have uh, pulled back uh, public 
funding for, for public higher education by such a large extent over the past 20 years um, is at the root of so many of the problems of higher education. It's the reason that public tuitions have gone up so much. It's the reason that student debt has gone up so much, at least for public uh, students at public institutions. It's the reason that there's so much competition and anxiety, I think, in, in private institutions, because there are not, are not sort of public institutions that, um, that can compete with those private institutions in the same way. It's the reason that flagship public colleges now admit so many out-of-state students and look, you know, have student bodies that look so much like those private institutions. It's the reason that you know, community colleges aren't a better solution for more uh, low-income students who don't particularly you know, want a four-year degree or love sitting in a classroom. Um, and and it, you know we've cut that funding at a moment when uh, every other country is investing lots in their public higher education system, and when all of the signs in the economy are that we need more and better educated young people. And so, until we fix that, until we decide as a nation that we want to invest again in uh, public higher education the same way that we did in the past, it's going to be really hard to to fix the problem with those small and medium sized solutions. My guest today has been Paul Tuff, author of The Years That Matter Most. You can find a review of that book online at educationnext.org. Paul, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.